Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 o'clock our time. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they daily laid at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, hallelujah, first time ever in his life, leaping up. He stood, first time he ever did that, and began to walk, first time he ever did that, and entered the temple with them. He had never gone in the temple before because they didn't let lame people go into the temple. And he was walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So when we get to Acts chapter number 3, this is where it moves from passion and power to precision. The Lord says in chapters 1 and 2 that the coming of the Holy Spirit inaugurated um, a process whereby signs, wonders, miracles, healings, deliverance from demonization, power, uh, salvations, fillings of the Holy Spirit. These things were taking place. And by the way, the church wasn't apologizing for any of it. Uh, the, the church was operating at such a high level, not just the apostles, but primarily through the apostles and the prophets, there was incredible supernatural movement going on, and nobody was saying to the community, I'm sorry, I know this is a little weird. They were just walking in it, and people were being healed and delivered. But when we get to chapter number three, we get to see what it looks like on an individual level. And so there's a lot for us to learn in this. None of this is over your head. It, it, it could be beyond some of our willingness to reach out and grab it by faith, but none of it's over our head. This is Bible, plain and simple. And so let's begin with John and Peter, two men in harmony. Verse number one tells us that John and Peter, and we know them from the Gospels as two unique individuals. You couldn't find two Christians that were more dissimilar. Yet Peter, who was a, a man of action, he was ready, fire, aim. That's how Peter kind of lived his life. John was a dreamer. He was a thinker. He, he'd let Peter run all and up and down as long as John, when Jesus was with him, could just hang out with Jesus, lay his head upon the chest of Jesus and just be with the master. They were very different. You had a planner and a thinker and a lover in John, and then you had a doer and a talker in Peter. And yet now, post-Pentecost, both of these men were, were now filled with the Spirit and leading in their capacities the church, and they were walking together. Why do I even bother making this up? Because I want to go ahead and say at the onset, all through the book of Acts, here's what you're going to find. God reserves the right to bless people that are completely different, uh, different than you. 
that, that the Lord is not bound. His omnipotent hands are not tied with some theological twine that says, oh, I'd bless her, but she's not like him, or I'd bless him, but he's not like her. God reserves the right to take people, and the beauty of diversity in the body of Christ is that we're not supposed to be alike. We're not all supposed to think alike about peripheral things. We're supposed to be right and think alike in the core doctrines of the faith. But above and beyond those things, God expects and even fosters that we might be distinct from each other, that we're not all going to be the same color. Hallelujah. I wrote this week that I'm glad that the church is not all white. It would be boring. I'm just going to tell you that. It would be a very boring vanilla church. But I'm also glad it's not all Asian or all black or all Hispanic. I love the fact that the gospel just moves like a mighty force for generation after generation. And anybody, anywhere, at any time that will call upon the name of Jesus will be brought into the body of Christ, and you don't have to forfeit your individuality. Now, we all submit under the Lord, and there's authority in the church, and I get all of that, but God doesn't make you distinctly different in all areas of your personality, your temperament, and your culture. He just brings those things under the yoke of Christ. And so you had a thinker and a doer, and one of them looked at the other and said, hey, man, it's about 3 p.m. You want to go pray together? So Peter and John did so. They had one common bond. They They were going up to the temple. Uh, the early Christians were still very Hebrew in how they did everything. And so they still had all of their Hebrew traditions, and a lot of them would be dealt with later, especially under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But when it was time to pray, the Hebrew hour of prayer, they would go up to the temple, and they had the beauty of knowing that they're going, and they know who God is. They had walked with him for three and a half years. They had seen him work the works of the Father. They had heard him preach like nobody had ever preached before. They had watched his sovereign hands raise the dead. And then they had seen those very same hands stretched out on two timbers and pierced with Roman spikes and as the blood flowed and atonement was made for their sins and the sins of all mankind they watched the savior give up the ghost by the way at about three o'clock in the afternoon on the cross just a short time before and then they knew that he had risen from the grave because they had seen him with his own eyes and so when they were going up to the temple they were going up with a uh, um, a more dynamic understanding about the one to whom they were praying and so john and peter are going up filled with the holy spirit The temple would have been filled with a lot of people, but not all of those people would have been filled with the Spirit of God, but these two guys were. And so they went up with one prioritized purpose. They went up at the hour of prayer, and it is amazing to me that that ninth hour, that call to press into God, took these two very different men who sang different parts in the kingdom, but the Lord was the conductor and he brought them into perfect harmony with each other. And so they go up and they're praying unto God. There there really is no application to this first point. It's something for us at times just to slow down and, and gauge how do we appreciate those that are different than us in the kingdom? How do do we interact with those that don't think like us, look like us, dress like us, sound like us, or smell like us? Um, Friends, listen, I I recommend this to everybody. Every Christian needs to go to a third world country and go worship with people that have nothing. Because you're going to find out that the Holy Spirit is not bound to a two-hour church service in suburban Atlanta. And, And it doesn't have to be lights, camera, action, and all of that. Believe it or not, God reserves the right to bless those that don't wear a collared shirt and a tie or a dress. Or God forbid, might carry something other than a certain Bible translation. I mean, the Lord blows the doors off of the kingdom, and it is so big unless you keep it small. And if you keep it small, you're going to feel violated all the time. When something goes on in your little K kingdom, 
that you don't think belongs in the big K kingdom. You know, there's room for cessationists and continuationists in the kingdom. Those are big theological terms that simply say that. There's room for those that believe in the gifts of the Spirit and those who deny the gifts of the Spirit. There's those that are premillennial, postmillennial, pre-trib, post-trib. There's those that believe in that you ought to be baptized by being dunked and those that believe it's fine to be sprinkled with water. It's okay. I'm going to tell you, listen to me. There's going to be Baptists in heaven. There's going to be Methodists in heaven. There's going to be Catholics in heaven. There's going to be Presbyterians in heaven. There's going to be non-denominations. There's no corner in the market. You say, Jeff, you sound like a liberal. No, listen, I'm just telling you this. I want to be liberal with love, and I want to be as liberal as God is. And I want to welcome anybody that God welcomes. I want Newbridge to have that attitude too, that we're not trying to orient ourselves to a certain flavor of a religious club so we compete with all the other clubs. We're kingdom people. And may God grow us in our willingness to be unified, even in times and with people that we don't see eye to eye on. So I had this plotted out. I said, Lord, thank you. Verse number one lets me get up on my soapbox for a minute and just say, hey, exhale, unclench, and relax. Not everybody's got to be like you, and it's okay. Amen? Verse number two, here we go. Because this is where the story really, really starts becoming precise. Because in the midst of John and Peter going up to the temple, Spirit-filled, seeking the Lord, pressing in, learning, growing, just being expanded in the kingdom. There's a man that they're about to meet whose life is an abyss. He's got a horrible existence. And in the midst of these two men going up and with thunder hearts, you know, ready to worship, ready to see what the Spirit's going to do, there's a man who goes there every day, and he's not expecting God to do anything. And God says, today's his day. Today is this man's day. So look in verse number two. I call him a misfit. He's a misfit in agony. First of all, I think that we can go out on this limb. I don't think it's a a shaky limb. I think it's sturdy that he probably viewed himself as a burden. Verse number two tells us about this man. His name is not even given. He's a man who was lame from birth. And as every day before, he was being carried by others and they would bring him to the temple We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want you to think about this. The Bible goes on to tell us in chapter number four that this guy was over 40 years old. So for four decades. So if we travel back in our mind to the year 1977, if that dude was born there, every day of his life since 1977 when he was born, he was absolutely incapacitated. He never walked. He never stood up. He, he, He never ran when the other boys started to run. He never worked the fields when they became 12 years old and started entering the manhood. No, he stayed back home with mom or sister or grandmother or whoever would provide for him. And he was a burden to them in his mind. Had to have been that way. It's not that he didn't want to. He probably wanted to more than anybody. He probably understood the privilege of getting up and moving and running and walking. Things that you and I take for granted. Things that you and I and others in his day would groan over. Oh, I've got to go to work. Oh, I've got to get up. Oh, I've got to walk down the road to the market. I've got to, I've got to. And he would just sit there and think, if only I could do that. Because his whole life was have to. He didn't have any choices. He didn't have any abilities. He didn't have option A, B, or C of what he was going to do that day, there came the time where the only thing he might have been good for in that culture, in that day, in that part of the world, was to become a beggar, and that's what he had been. And so like this day, like any other day, somebody carried him to his spot. 
And they took him, and his spot, we're going to find out in a minute, was a prime piece of real estate when it came to begging. As a matter of fact, look at it in verse number two. He lived in the place of dead religion. Forgive me if that's a little hostile sounding, but I do believe it to be true. It says, they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. So you had multiple uh, ways to enter into the temple, and the beautiful gate would lead to a courtyard, but this gate was ornate. Uh, Historians tell us that it could have been as tall as 75 feet tall, and perhaps as wide as 60 feet wide. They tell us that it was overlaid with Corinthian bronze and that it was glistening. It was beautiful, hence the name, the beautiful gate. And so the people thought, or the, whoever was taking care of the man, let's lay him out there. People want to see the beautiful gate. we got higher traffic levels that may result in a greater chance for him to earn a little more by begging. And so I want you to think about this. It is not unlikely that he'd been out there begging since he was 9 or 10 years old. Decades of nothingness, decades of reinforced mental, emotional, and spiritual statements that say, it'll never get better, it's never gonna change, God's not coming through, God has abandoned you. By the way, in that day, it was very common in some streams of religious tradition that if you were afflicted or sick in your body, there were some that were super spiritual and would say, you've either sinned or your parents have sinned, but you're being judged by God. He was born that way. He was born that way, he had done nothing to to earn this thing in his life. And yet it was his reality. And there he was every single day, right at the gates of man's religion, right at the gate of the temple, right at the front door of the church. Can I say it that way? Right there where the most religious activity in Jerusalem would have been going on, where countless prayers were offered, where where innumerable sacrifices had been shed under the glory of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And here is this man in the midst of the most religious scene, and nothing is touching his life. There's no power. There's no hope. Friends, I want you to, to think with me on this. Jesus visited the temple on several occasions that we know of in Scripture, And we shouldn't believe that every time he went there, it's recorded in Scripture. But it is highly likely that this man was there in the temple on days, because he's there every day. Remember that. They laid him daily at the gate. It's highly likely that there were days where the healer, the Messiah, Yeshua, the maverick rabbi, came into the temple. And this man knows of the renown of this one named Jesus from Nazareth, how he heals, how he raises the dead, how he performs miraculous works, how he has authority over demons, how he puts the scribes and the Pharisees in their place where they can't say a word because nobody can argue with his sanctified logic. And so the renown of Jesus, it's highly likely that it reached this man. And I want to ask you this question. I want to try to connect with some of us here. Is it, is it unrealistic to think that he could have thought, yes, Jesus is the healer, but he clearly doesn't want to heal me. Jesus is the deliverer, but that's for other people because mine hasn't come. And I heard what they did to him. I heard they killed him. And so he came and he went and I didn't get my miracle. So I need to remember, I'm just a beggar getting by. So Jeff, why are you telling us this? Listen to me. It's how a lot of Christians live. I'm just getting by. 
I'm just sticking my hand out, hoping somebody somewhere will put something in it that gets me through today and into tomorrow. I'm going to show up at the temple, and I'll get as close to religion as I feel like I can go, but I don't have any expectation to meet with God. I'm not asking for a touch from God anymore. I believe if that season was ever going to found me, it it would have found me when I was calling out the loudest for it. Now, all of that, by the way, is conjecture. The Scripture does not say that. What I'm saying is a lot of us have gone through that, and some of you are in it right now. That because it hasn't happened yet, that something shifted in your thinking, and you said it probably won't happen. And by the way, the enemy, that's a fertile field for him to work in. When what you're asking God for hasn't happened yet, the devil will pop in from time to time and whisper, why don't you quit praying about that? He doesn't care. Or he'll get theological. If you're theological, if you lean and you tilt theologically, especially if you tilt reformed, the devil will come in and say, look, God's sovereign. God's sovereign, and there's no need to ask him. If he wants to heal you, he'll heal you. And if he doesn't want to heal you, he won't heal you. And I've heard that taught. By the way, unfortunately for me, I taught that. I used to teach that. And the problem is, is that you just can't find it in Scripture. You can piece it together. You can make a straw man argument. The fact of the matter is, if you go anywhere in Scripture and you see somebody approaching God, asking for healing, Jesus Christ especially, in the the Gospels, Jesus never said, nah, uh Never. Not one time. But there were instances where perhaps he wasn't asked, where he didn't heal anybody. But every single time we see somebody approaching Jesus Christ and asking him for healing, he would talk to them. Sometimes he'd pull out their faith a little bit, but ultimately he would touch them and he would heal them. And yet the enemy says, well, he's just sovereign. He'll do what he wants to do. Well, he is sovereign. He's sovereign. But since when is sovereign synonymous with unfeeling and disinterested and uncaring? I mean, Jesus compared God the Father to earthly fathers. I know I quote this regularly, but one day it's going to really get somebody. Jesus said, you guys are evil fathers. Isn't that a blessing, Dustin? Jesus looks at us. He goes, you guys being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. And he says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit, or in the other passage, give good gifts to them that ask? And, And yet... We, we just leave that there and we don't realize that's actually a principle. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, God is a better daddy than you. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you something. If my son sitting on the front row comes to me in pain and agony and hurting, and I have the ability to fix that, what kind of father would I say, no, I'm going to let you struggle. Yeah. I'm going to let you sit there. Now, I can sense right now in the room, this is stretching some of your faith. Because some of you are saying, well, well, God's just wanting to get the glory out of the pain. I'm telling you, if we don't start challenging our own framework of how we view the Father heart of God, then my friends, we are doing a great dishonor to him. We must be relentless and fierce in pressing into the reality that God is so good. I actually think it's the opposite. I I don't think that we presume on God by asking good things. I think we're negligent in asking him for good things. I actually think he he, he looks down at us at times saying, why don't you just ask me for more? Why don't you just expect me to move on higher levels? 
say, Jeff, I don't believe that. Then why did Paul say that he's exceeding abundantly able to do above better, able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think? Yeah. Brothers and sisters, you see, we got, we, we, we've got so much man's theology in us, we've forgotten our Bible. And, and I'm going to tell you, there's not a one of us in here that's immune to it. And so that's why I'm saying we've got to fiercely press into the Scriptures. I, I tell you, if I could press the eject button on all of our theological training and just remove it from the church, I'd take it out today. You say, well, Jeff, you're going to get rid of some good stuff. Well, listen, the good stuff is found in the Bible, and so you'll get that back, but I'm going to hit eject on all of it so the bad stuff goes and never comes back. So we get down into... Let me just get down into verse number three. One moment of destiny. Okay, so you've got the misfit, you've got John, you've got Peter, you've got the beautiful gate of the church not doing a thing for the man. He's just sitting there begging, living for mere survival. And then here's this moment of destiny. And God reserves the right to appoint a moment of destiny in your life that you didn't see coming. It's one of the attributes of him being God. He doesn't have to ask permission. Here's a person with need, verse 3. So the man sees Peter and John about to go into the temple. And look what he does. He does what he is best at. He asks and expects to receive an alms. That's just an old phrase. I'm, I'm pretty sure you know what it means. He's begging. Give me something. Give me anything. Give me anything that you can spare. Hey, buddy, can you spare a dime? And, and, and he's, this is what he's doing. He's been trained in life to aim really low. Aim low, you might get something. And so he's trained intellectually. He's trained temperamentally. He's trained spiritually not to expect anything revolutionary to happen in his life. He's hoping that somebody will have enough religious guilt as they're going to church to give him something, a dime, a dollar, anything. And Peter and John obviously must have looked happy or something because the guy says, something about those two fellows, and he, 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 he works it up. He's got this thing down pat. He's been doing it probably 30 years. Alms, alms, needy, help a, a blind man, help a lame man, help a, help a sick man, feed me. I have no help. I'm hungry. And all he's doing is crying out in his incapacity to meet his own needs. Nobody has ever been able to offer the man the help he really needs. There's been multitudes that have helped him get by another day, but nobody's helped him with what he really needs. Let me make a bold statement. And I know some of this sounds critical, but I think it's accurate. It's a perfect picture of what the church has been doing in America for the last 50 years, maybe 100 just getting people by. Let's just give them enough to shut them up. Give them enough to, to, to meet the need. They're aiming low, so we ought to be able to meet their needs. And that's why our churches are now in the 21st century. We're in the second decade of the 21st century. And our, our churches feel successful when they're meeting the lowest expectation of the people who come through our gates. And the people actually feel like they're getting something good when we're meeting their lowest expectation. Hey, it was a good service today. It was good songs. Hey, he preached a long time, but it was a pretty good message. You know, hey, I met a friend today. And uh, you know what? They prayed for me. They, they prayed for me to be blessed. They prayed for me to be prospered. They prayed for me to get well. 
And meanwhile, no power. Nothing changes. He said, well, Jeff, you just got you, you to let it go incrementally. You, you, you do that for 50 years and something's going to happen. Really, is that the pattern we see in Scripture? Now, I believe in being faithful for the duration, but what I'm saying is this. The astounding lack of power. I'm not saying truth. I'm not saying theology. I'm not saying doctrine. And doctrine, is, at its highest, has power in the sense of when it's believed, it translates into power. But there's a reason why the Apostle Paul said, I didn't come to you in word only, but I came in demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. Paul saw them as two distinct and necessary facets for ministry in the kingdom. And we've got the word, but who's hiding the power? Well, it's not God. So are y'all with me? I'm going anyway, but I'd like to take some of you with me. Here we go. So we see a person with need, but now here's what I like. And this is, this is where I'm convicted. I want to be Peter. I don't want to be just like Peter, but I want to operate like Peter did. In verse number four, here's a person with assurance. Peter directed his gaze on him, as did John, and said, look here. Paraphrase. If he was from Georgia, he would say, look here. He said to the lame man, right here, man. Right here, I want you looking at me. John steps right up. You got four eyes looking on two eyes, and, and they're both. I mean, if you've ever been in the presence of a prophetic person in the moment where God's about to do something, it's weird. It's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's good, but it's weird. The whole atmosphere in that little thing changes. It's like a cone that God just puts a cone on it. You don't hear anything. It's like everything else drops off. The, the literal air around you feels different. And there, it's, it's pulsing with something more than just human an, anticipation, uh, anticipation. You sense God's about to do something. And I imagine this moment was very much like that. And, and when Peter said, look at us, the man couldn't do anything else but look at him. And so Peter, John, now have this uh, invalid. He's, he's incapacitated. He can't do anything for himself. And look at verse 5. The man with the need also is a person with hope. Verse 5. So he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from him. Now, he was about to get a whole lot more than he expected, but he had some level of mustard seed faith that, that something good was about to happen. I don't, I don't think for, there's any reason for us to believe that he had an inkling that he was about to get healed. I don't even think he was probably considering eternal things, but he obeyed the apostle's command. And the apostle said, look at us. And the man's gaze, his attention was fixed on them. And he, and he literally, he felt like, okay, good. They're going to help me. And boy, did they. Look in verse six. We see a person with an answer. Peter said, I don't have any money. That's bad news to a beggar. I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, <laughs> I give to you. And then he said words that nobody had ever said to him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I just want to hunker down there. A couple of things about what Peter said. First of all, Peter said, I don't have any money. It's interesting that Peter would not have signed off on the health and wealth gospel, or at least the wealth part of it. He, he didn't have any money. Peter was not, you know, rolling in dough. Uh, the church would remain somewhat impoverished for quite a long time. They had to take care of each other. 
They weren't powerful and influential. Uh, they, were, they were closeted. They were under the threat of incarceration and death for what they were doing in worship and praise. And so Peter looks at him and says, I don't have any money to give you, but I do have something. I have something. And Peter knew that what he was about to give, Peter absolutely knew he already had it. Now, walk through this with me. The story is told of Thomas Aquinas meeting with one of the cardinals who was counting money or an offering. This is obviously centuries and centuries ago, and there was a mammoth amount of money. Thomas Aquinas was watching this cardinal handle the money, and the cardinal commented to Thomas Aquinas, and he said, the church can't say we have no silver or gold anymore. And Thomas Aquinas said, and we also cannot say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. See, friends, the church has a lot of stuff. But does it trouble you that we don't have the most organic power that the early Christians has? It troubles me. It troubles me. And so as Peter looks at him, he says a command. He gives the man a command to obey, and the only way this command can be obeyed by this man is faith because it's illogical, it's unreasonable, it doesn't fit with the theology of their day. It's a misfit moment in the temple because people don't get up and do what he's about to do in the temple, but he's about to do it. And so Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus, get up. Now, logic says, I can't, I'm crippled. Peter said, get up. Logic says, I've never walked. Peter says, you're about to walk. Logic says, I cannot do the things you're asking me to do. Peter says, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Now, it's not presumption on Peter's part. That is Peter creating a crisis moment where the man must either soften his heart or harden his heart. He's either going to harden it and say, I don't believe in this one named Jesus, or he's going to soften it, and hallelujah. Peter makes it easy on him. The Bible indicates that Peter reaches down and grabs him. <laughs> Peter wasn't going to give him too much opportunity to shoot down the making of a miracle. And that's verses 7 and 8. We see this man made new. He takes him by the right hand, and he raised him up. I just heard Josh Groban saying, you raised me up. <laughs> and immediately, his feet and ankle bones, ankles were made strong. By the way, that's Lucan language. That is in the Greek. Those words are not used regularly, and they are technical, precise things, and they de describe a, a process that Luke is using medical terms about the fusing of all the parts together in the ankles. It was a miracle that Luke is writing from a doctor's perspective after learning of this thing many years later. And then the Bible says, leaping up. The man got up, and he leapt. And he began to walk, and he entered the temple, first time ever. Entered the temple with John and Peter, walking, leaping, and praising God. Oh. So, he totally messed up church that day. Totally messed it up. Shh. We don't leap here. Shh. You're shouting. We're trying to sing the... 51st Psalm, it's a moment of just, you know, gravity and sobriety. Will you calm down? And this dude's a whirling dervish in the temple. He, he, he is not going to be tamed. He's not going to be quieted. And all of a sudden, 
everybody is watching what's going on. I, I want to give you this, and it's not, a, it's not a deep point, but it's something I hope you'll put in your pocket, whether you go to church here or you go somewhere else or you're watching on live stream. When the man stood up for the first time, he had reason to shout. He had reason to dance. He had reason to leap. He had reason to cause a ruckus in that moment. Why? Because God had just delivered him from 40 years of disability. He'd never, his head had never been lifted up and, and stood upon shoulders that were supported by a trunk that were attached to legs that were balanced by feet. He'd never done that before. You know, you and I read it, yeah, that's Acts chapter 3. No, it's an unnamed man's radical moment of change in his life where Jesus did the miraculous and kingdom power was placed on full display in a religious setting where there was no power. And, and brothers and sisters, I love the fact, by the way, one of the, this is one of the first gotcha moments when I became a Christian. I was reading through my New Testament and I got to Acts 3 and I just hijacked it and I said, that's me. That's, that's what happened to me. As a former drug abuser, as a former drunk, as a former criminal. Now, if you want to run, now's the time to run. You can get off. But that was my testimony. In an instant on August 4th, 1994, God took a man like that and totally converted me, radically delivered me, set me free, broke every chain off of my life. I never did drugs again. I never got drunk again. He delivered me from all of that. And so it made me, makes me want to shout, throw my hands up and shout. Kick my feet up and shout, amen. That's the kind of thing. And I did it at a little bitty independent Baptist church named Meadow Baptist Church. And you know what? Nobody said, shh. Nobody said, mm, we don't do that around here. You know what? They did what the people in the temple did. We, we cannot deny a notable miracle has been done. I just want to tell you this. Um, when God intends to stir something up, you better not try to settle it down. If anything, in, in my lifetime, I hope my soon-to-be 12-year-old on the front row, I hope his generation is stirred in the kingdom. I hope they're so stirred up that they give us Gen Xers headaches when, when we're old. And so I love you, my baby boomer friends. I do. I love you. I thank God for you. And I think most of the boomers that are still here at this church that didn't fly out, but the, the ones that are still here are saying, yeah, we want to see the Gen Xers and the millennials stirred up. We, we want to see them running with the horsemen. We want to see them operating in power that we failed to choose when we were their age. We want to see them, and we want to facilitate it, and we want to help them. And that's what Peter and John did. So he got an offer to get up, and he would never again pray for a handout to get by. You see, once you've tasted of deliverance and heaven, and power, you will spit out of your mouth the foam of religion. You'll hate it. You'll smell it before it gets to you. you you'll, you'll walk in and you'll, smells religious in here. You'll hang out. 20 minutes later, somebody serves you a big room temperature bowl of religion. And you'll push back from the table and say, thank you, but no thank you. And you'll leave. Now, friends, you, that may not be kind. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be kind. I'm trying to, be, I'm trying to pastor us right now. I, I'm trying to say that Jesus constantly offended the religious. 
Who nailed him to the cross? It wasn't primarily the Romans. The Romans never would have messed with Jesus. It was the religious people. It was the ones who knew their Bibles the best. It was the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest. And Jesus came in there as the maverick and said, this isn't what my father desires for his people. And he called them out and they nailed him to a tree to shut him up. However, he lives forevermore and he speaks to this very day to you and I saying, don't go where they went. Last point because, yeah, it's time. One message with clarity. Let me just give you this. Worship team, come on up. There was a message that day in the temple of transformational power. All the people saw the man walking and praising God. He was the message. Now, Peter's going to preach a good one here shortly, and we're not going to get to that today. But Peter would preach a verbal message, but, but on, in the, the initial moments, the man was the message. You see, anybody can argue theology, but when a man who's never stood up is now standing up and leaping and shouting and praising God, you can put your textbook away, sir. You're not going to win that argument. <laughs> and so <laughs> they're all just standing there watching him. I love my Bible, but I hate the fact that I have to read this like history that I've never experienced. It aggravates my spirit. I, I'm jealous. I'm jealous that Peter and John and all of the people who didn't believe in Yeshua in the temple that day got to see that miracle, and I've not seen this. Now, I've seen God do some healings. I've never seen something like this, and I want to, and we should expect to, and we should press in for that. So, Jeff, I don't know about that. Well, so what is the alternative? Sit around and, and increase our intensity about how to, to deny that God works in miraculous ways? Do we want to feed off of each other's doubt, or do we want to feed off of each other's hunger? And so in verse 18, or verse number 10, you have this message of awakening wonder. Not only did they see him, but they recognized him. Verse 10, as the one who sat at the beautiful gate in the temple. This is the beggar. Everybody had seen him before, but they had never seen him like this. And notice this. This is where the sign becomes a wonder at the end of verse number 10. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And, and I just want to say this, church, listen. How do I say this? Lord, help me. God has not backed off of his willingness to stun a generation with his displays of power. He hasn't said, yeah, that's what I used to do, but I don't do that anymore. You can't find that in your Bible. You can find it in seminary. You can find it in churches. You can find it in textbooks. But you can't find it in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, at the end of the first century, God quit doing this. It's not in the Bible. And what we've done is we said, okay, well, there were dips. There were lulls in the, in the supernatural. And therefore, let's interpret that to mean that there were lulls in the supernatural. Therefore, God's not going to work that way anymore. And we frame it into a doctrine that wraps like a chain around the 21st century church toward Christians being born again today unless they find a church that teaches the Bible will not have any basis to believe in miracles in 15 years. The end of the Old Testament... For 400 years, God gave no prophetic word. 400 years, God was silent. And then one day, God said, John the Baptist, go out in the wilderness. I'm going to send a crowd out there. You're going to be my voice. 
So 400 years of silence. And if cessationists were living back then, they would have looked at John the Baptist and they would have said, I'm sorry, you can't preach. God doesn't sin like that because there's been 400 years of silence. God doesn't work that way anymore. Except he does. And he did. So you say, Jeff, what are you trying to do? I'm trying to get us to expect that the God of the Bible didn't reinvent himself after the age of enlightenment from 1685 to 1815. He doesn't bow down to our seminary professors. He doesn't bow down to our denominational belches of erroneous doctrine. He doesn't bow down to anybody. He is Yahweh. He's the God who split the Red Sea. He's the God that shook Mount Sinai. He's the God that dried up the Jordan. He's the God that stopped the earth's rotation so the sun would seemingly stand still. He's the God that brought in his only begotten son through the the womb of a, a virgin. He's the God who took a perfect, holy man named Jesus, who was not only the son of God, but the son of man. And he filled him with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And from that point on, Jesus went about to destroy the works of the devil. And the devil raged like the heathen do mounted up and amassed all of his forces and said, we will place our greatest weapon on this one named Jesus who is the Holy Son of God. We will put death upon him, and when we kill him, we will win. And so Jesus placed himself as the bullseye of death, but it wasn't the devil's doing. It pleased the Father to bruise the Son. And so the Son took the wrath of the Father. He took what, in effect, as David took Goliath's own sword and cut off the head of Goliath, Jesus took Satan's weapon, death, and cut off the head of the serpent. And now all who believe in Jesus are triumphant. That's the greatest miracle, but it's not the only miracle. 